0: You're listening to the Young Arthroplasty Group Augment podcast channel, part of AUKUS Amplified from the American Association of Hip and Knee Surgeons, advancing hip and knee patient care through education, advocacy, research, and outreach.
1: Welcome to the podcast of the AUKUS Young Arthroplasty Group, The Augment. I'm Jenna Bernstein, an arthroplasty surgeon with Connecticut Orthopedics.
2: And I'm Peter Gold. I'm an arthroplasty surgeon in Denver, Colorado at Panorama Orthopedic and Spine. We're really happy to welcome our guests today on the podcast, Dr. Steve Engstrom and Dr. Christopher Skian. Dr. Engstrom is a knee and hip surgeon who's currently an assistant professor of orthopedic surgery at Vanderbilt University. He's a former AUKUS health policy fellow and a YAG committee member, and he's currently a member of the AUKUS Advocacy Committee and the AOS Coding Coverage and Reimbursement Committee. Uh, he's been known uh, around the world as a coding guru in hip and knee.
1: And Dr. Skihan is an arthroplasty surgeon with South Coast Health in Fall River, Massachusetts. He completed his residency at the Naval Medical Center in Portsmouth. He then did his fellowship at the NYU Insel Scott Kelly Institute. He became interested in pre-optimization work through serving on the AUKUS Advocacy Committee. And thanks so much to both of you for being here with us today.
0: Thanks, John. To
2: just kind of start back at the beginning and kind of educate some of our listeners who may not know you know what is pre-optimization work specifically and how did that come about and why we're we really talking about it today?
0: Yeah, so I can kind of speak to a little bit of the history. This started about two and a half, three years ago when there was an anonymous survey, anonymous claim made to CMS about the total joint codes being potentially overvalued due to a timing discrepancy. Basically, there was a small review study that was published in a, a lesser known journal that Basically said that surgeons and CMS are overestimating the time that it takes to do a joint replacement by something like an hour, whereas surgeons initially said it was a 90-minute or a two-hour procedure. It's really only a 45-minute or a one-hour procedure. And this was anonymously submitted to CMS, which led to an entire resurvey of the hip and knee codes. And unfortunately, it's really, really challenging to resurvey a code and have the value of that code either go up or, or stay the same. If there's a resurvey for a code based upon either a site of service anomaly, meaning more of them are now being done as an outpatient than are being done as an inpatient, or a time anomaly that CMS tends to take the side of anything that shows that it takes less time there's a tremendous amount of cost savings that comes in when they can decrease reimbursement for a procedure especially such a high volume procedure like uh, hip and knee replacement so the end result of that survey was hip and knee replacement was each devalued by one rvu and our response to that was we felt like it was unfair we felt like there wasn't any less work that was being done and with everything that had happened in the preceding five years with the bundle, the Medicare bundles, and the, all of the, the episode of care work that we had really worked hard on, we felt like all we did was shift the amount of work that we were doing from the post-operative period, which is the only thing that the CMS global period values, To the pre-op period, and so many of the people on the advocacy committee, like Hutch and Adam Rana, were really, really instrumental at convincing CMS that we were right. Like we weren't doing any less work; we just shifted the time frame for it. So ultimately, CMS they came back to us with a charge of, "How do we code this? What do we need to do?" And we piggybacked off of these principal care management codes, which are codes that are already in, they're relatively new, but they were already being put in use with internal medicine physicians who are managing either chronic illnesses or managing and coordinating care around a unifying diagnosis. So basically our proposal was our unifying diagnosis is either osteoarthritis of the hip or osteoarthritis of the knee. And all of the care coordination that we do that takes a significant amount of time and that you know, folks like Max Courtney has been doing. You know, we we that it's it's upwards of an hour or two that ancillary staff and clinical staff are doing to to get these patients to the operating room, and you know, we were. Thankfully, successful with this advocacy measure, and we now have these new codes, two sets of codes, one for non-clinical staff and one for the MD and physician extender level that we can use to appropriately quantify this time and generate a bill and, and recoup some of the the revenue that was lost by devaluing the codes.
1: So let's start super simple for our listeners. Can you talk about really what a principal care management code is? Because this is not something orthopedics we had really talked about prior.
3: Yeah, I could help with that. So principal care management codes and chronic care management codes are these kind of ancillary support codes that are being used to bill for time to help co-manage patients. So when you have a patient with multiple chronic conditions, it requires a lot more coordination that can be performed in just the office setting. And so primary care docs have been using these, as Steve said, for a while now to help manage a lot of the medical comorbidities, coordinate care consults to specialists, modify home medications and change medications around. And so what the principal care management codes are basically just a way to capture that work that Steve was saying that we're already doing and structured it in a way so that it can be built to CMS. And really it's meant for the, after the indication of surgery is made, but before the global period starts to bill for any work performed at the discretion of the clinician or the surgeon who's doing the surgery.
1: And right now, you talked a little bit about this being used for primary care doctors. Is it being used currently by any other surgeons? And is it being paid when other specialties are using it right now?
0: That's a great question. I mean, orthopedics was the first group to effectively lobby to use these in the surgical setting. I know there's a lot of interest around this, particularly with bariatric surgeons and transplant surgeons who do a ton of medical optimization, but we are the first to be successful to be allowed to use these codes. All of us are in various stages of implementing them. Chris is probably the furthest along out of any of us, but the short answer to the second part of your question is we just don't know. We don't exactly know what the reimbursement is going to be like from this. We don't know if, you know, we know that CMS has a commitment to pay for this and Medicare has a commitment to paying for these, but we're not hundred percent sure if the private payers are going to follow suit. So Chris, have you been billing these yet or how have you been doing it?
3: Yeah. So I could speak to some personal experience. We've been billing them out. So starting in the month of April, we, we went live with our program. We have not yet, Gotten the audit back from our finance on who is paying what. But my suspicion is based on the CCM codes, your best patients for fulfilling the payments are going to really be the Medicare patients with secondary insurance. And I say the secondary insurance because the part of the PCM program, the PCM codes, there is an out of pocket expense. And the critical care management codes, which have been used by our primary care teams for a while here, have noticed that patients who have no secondary insurance, have a larger out-of-pocket component and tend to exit out of the program because you have to allow the patient to exit the program at any point if they're not interested. These aren't codes you can just drop for work. It's part of a structured program. And so, you know, as it stands right now, we really just don't know yet which payers are going to pay. But we know from the CCM codes that primary Medicare will pay and that the secondary insurances oftentimes will pick up the remainder
2: balance. So it sounds like right now you have a patient come and see you, they need a total knee or a total hip. You make that decision. And then they under, they you can you you do have to consent them for this PCM service. And then once you do, is there a potential chance that the patient can get charged for this, or how does that look?
0: Yeah, so that's exactly right. This is a multi-step process in order to build these codes, and there the requirements for the codes are there has to be a consent from the patient, and they have to opt into the program. And part of that consent is letting them know that. We will be billing their insurance company. We will be billing Medicare for these services and they may incur an out-of-pocket cost. And what our approach has been is sort of been this is part of getting a joint replacement. You know what I mean? There is a lot of work that gets done, and we have to medically optimize you for surgery. And we have a lot of staff and, and that commits a lot of time to this. So this is part of getting a joint replacement. And people who opt out will tend to opt out and we're not gonna. We're not going to deny care to those people. We're going to continue, you know, taking good care of them and performing their joint replacements. But we've not been met with a ton of resistance at this point because people understand that this is work that gets done and it needs to be done. The other requirement is there has to be a plan of care. So for us, this is relatively easy. This this is a lot harder with the chronic care management codes, but for us it's, you have to have a unifying diagnosis, which is osteoarthritis of the hip or the knee. And then you have to have a care plan. And for most centers that do a lot of joint replacements, they have a standardized protocol of preoperative teaching and discussions regarding DME and physical therapy and discharge plan and family support. That all falls into the principal care plan of care. That has to be documented somewhere in the medical record. And there's all different ways to do that that and then like chris said the patient has to know that they at any time can opt out of this program so there's several requirements and then there's more billing requirements when it comes to when the codes are dropped these are codes that are used over a 30 day period so from the day that the patient signs the consent that 30 day span will make up the first code and you have to meet a certain amount of time which is 30 minutes either on either the ancillary clinic side, the clinical support side, or the clinician side to drop the code. Anything else you wanted to add to that, Chris?
3: I think, you know, the way that this program is designed is as we've been alluding to, this is not just a, okay, we're going to start dropping codes because our clinical staff are calling patients. You really need to have this as a part of a large structured program, which like Steve was saying, most institutions and most groups will have a program in place. This pairs really well with a care pathway, nurse-run care pathways for pre-optimization, things with specific pathologies like BMI points or diabetic control, where you have specific algorithms for nurses to follow. Because ultimately, you don't require a physician to be actively involved in this process, but they can bill under your name because it's clinician-directed work. And so having a clear pathway for this nursing staff to do this work Beyond just the standard calls you would do for total knee or total hip replacement to prepare them for surgery, really helps optimize and force them to make those nurses work at the maximum of their license while minimizing the workload that comes back to you. And of course, some does come back to you because you do have to review the charts on occasion. At least I like to do that. But it is really nice because now you're using these surgical um, non-clinical staff, the clinical staff members, I'm sorry, as force multipliers, is what we would say in the military to improve what you can do.
1: So can you walk us through an example of how you imagine arthroplasty patient kind of going through this process from when you see them in the office and sign them up for surgery to having surgery, like what the steps are in between.
3: So we had a pretty straightforward pathway before we started with DCM. And that was, there was an initial phone call. So just to back up, we have care navigators that are nurses that had been in place well before this as a part of our joint commission advanced accreditation. We felt that those were required to help get that accreditation. Okay. And so they would make an initial call after you indicated the patient. So you would see the patient in the office, you'd indicate them, and then you would CC the chart to the care navigator. The care navigator would have a scripted intake where we would do an inpatient, outpatient criteria screening and, and coaches and determine who your, your perioperative plan is and, discharge plan. And then the navigators wouldn't really call the patient until about six weeks before the surgery to kind of start the joint replacement class, make sure the PAT testing was done, basically kind of button everything up and get it ready for surgery. That's where you would catch any kind of like, yeah, they didn't get their cardiac consult, that kind of stuff. So to prevent late cancellations, what's happened since then is now with the principal care management, they still make that initial call, but as a component of that, you know, when I see the patient initially and I consent them for the program, there's a smart phrase I've shared with Steve that gets inserted into the actual chart that lays out very clearly what these requirements are. And, you know, anyone can find this out. If you go to the MLN Matters, there's a workbook in September that really lays out what the requirements are for the program and how you can document it appropriately. And then that initial call is still made, but there's a care pathway that's incorporated into that note. And so they can document actively what pathway on the care pathway they're going down and what the consults are, what the interventions are going to be. And then every month they now follow up with a follow-up PCM note. And then they do their final call again at around six weeks prior to surgery. Um, So that's really how it's changed is that now, because most of us in our system have a four to six month wait for surgery. So during that four to six month wait for surgery, all this active participation is going on with our care navigators to optimize the patients while simultaneously capturing about an hour's worth of phone call work per month. Just as an aside, with the time-based, the additional 99427, you know, the opinion of our finance staff at our hospital system is that you actually need to go past the 15-minute mark for that second half hour. You don't have to fulfill the full half hour, but you do have to do at least over half to capture that second code.
0: Yeah, that additional add-on code is in 15-minute chunks. That's how we we interpret it as well. We're really similar to Chris. We've always had these clinical care nurse navigators who do so much of our care coordination, and they've been in place long before PCM codes. And we have not changed a lot. The goal is that this shouldn't interrupt a physician's practice. It should fit into a physician's practice. And it's, it's not to introduce more work into the system. It's just to appropriately... Quantify the work that's already being done. So we, you know, we have had nurse coordinators in place and they typically work with a patient within the month prior to surgery. And then if a patient books out further than a month, they'll usually have correspondence with one of our practice nurses. So we have practice nurses who handle all of our telephone triage And then we have nurse coordinators who specifically work with the joint replacement patients that are scheduled for surgery in that month prior to surgery to make sure that all of their needs have been met. So that's how we've utilized. We have these sort of two different subsets of nurses that will interact with the patient's chart. We also have work that gets done on the physician side. All of us have either physician assistants or nurse practitioners that we work with, and they typically do a preoperative phone call with all of the patients to make sure to just reiterate their discharge plan. They'll review a lot of the labs and the medical optimization. So they'll, they'll go into the patient's chart and make sure that their anesthesia eval has been done and the anesthesiologist haven't raised any other concerns that the pre-op labs are, have been done and there's not a patient who's up for a revision with, with an elevated CRP that might need to come back for an aspiration. or And then they'll do a telephone call with the patient to coordinate their prescriptions, make sure that they're getting the right anticoagulation, make sure they're getting the right pain meds. And prior to this, they had been keeping track of this. And this visit alone, just for the phone call, range somewhere between 14 and 21 minutes so when they've gone back and actually added in the time that they've used reviewing the chart helping to template the case and actually doing the the paperwork of the prescriptions it it easily reaches a 30 minute time frame so this can be built multiple different ways so we haven't changed a lot in terms of our care coordination it's Um, And that's kind of the point is we don't want people to completely disrupt their practices. Now, maybe if these codes allow you to streamline your practice even more or develop these pathways that are obviously beneficial to the patient, then, hey, PCM codes are a great sort of bargaining chip with institutions to say, hey, I know you don't want to hire a nurse coordinator, but look, this is a, a, a value add from a revenue perspective.
1: And who is entering the codes and when are you entering them?
3: So that's that's tricky. (laughs) So the way that they're coded, it's a monthly time code. So you have to add them at the end of the month of that time slot. And so the way it's really depending on how your EMR system is set up, if you have CCM uh, add on for Epic capable and you have like an Epic EMR, then it's possible to customize CCM depending on what build you have. And I think that's what Steve is working on at his institution to automate a lot of this code capture. Basically it automates you have it start time and an end time that will capture within the note. You close the note, it automates the code drop. And then at the end of the month it gets sent out on the back end through your billing department to be billed at once. You don't drop them and bill them every time. You have to drop them and bill them at the end of the month. And so I don't have that build in my system. So the workaround that we did is the nurses will call via a telehealth appointment, uh, kind of a what we call telemedicine on the fly and they'll document in a note and there are some nuances with epic where you can have multiple notes per encounter there's always that create a new note button so every call they make in that month they'll create a note and close the note but they won't sign the encounter and then at the end of the month they just they get a, there's a reminder for them or the odd billing office will say hey you have open encounters at the end of the month and they'll close out those notes and they'll just manually add up the time and drop the code it's a little more time intensive it's a little more bootstrapped But for a smaller practice that I'm a part of, we only have four arthroplasty surgeons that we're going to be rolling this out to. You can do it. It's just not the most efficient way to do it.
0: Yeah, Epic has this capability. I have not been successful at getting Vanderbilt to purchase that plug in as of yet they're looking at it. We've looked at a bunch of different ways to integrate this into the system that we're already using. It's really not that hard if you have the ability, if you already have an encounter or an episode of care that's set up that your nurses document into. Right now we're doing everything as separate communications within the chart, so we're we're just kind of we're developing an episode of care where still somebody has to add up the time and drop the code at the end of the month. And we're going back and forth on the best way to do that. It's been a little bit of a slower, slower build here at a large academic center. There's a lot more hurdles to jump through. But the goal is that by doing this at Vanderbilt, it's something we can easily apply to the litany of other institutions that have Epic out there.
1: So what is AUKUS doing right now to put this together for all of the membership and kind of share this information once you guys who are the experts figure out how to make it work?
0: So we're working with some of the health policy fellows and, you know, Chris and I are, are kind of doing this from different practice models, you know, um, and I think the end goal is that by fall AUKUS meeting, we have significant data from a variety of different practice models that we can present at the the larger meeting to sort of say, this is how we've done it this is what our success rate has been this is who's paying for it this is how much they're paying for it and really what we want to collect is you know the number of rvus billed, the collections per rvu so that we can say you know are, are we really recouping the value that we hope to be recouping from these codes
3: you know that i can't impress upon listeners enough the scalability of this program and the value added to your institution so you know when you're talking to administrators nobody really wants to know how much something costs but the hope is by fall we'll have some real data to present to really give some ammunition to surgeons to take back to either their practice or their institutions to say hey listen you know these nurse navigators that you have that you're paying a salary to that are just doing the necessary work but not actually they're just a cost center can now really be a profit center for the institution or the practice, and just from a scalability perspective, we are a medium-sized uh, healthcare system in southeastern Massachusetts. Our primary care docs. There's about 3,000 patients enrolled in the CCM managed by 17 LPNs. You just think of the numbers there. Like if you have a large orthopedic practice with a significant wait time for surgery, say four months, five, six months and you're billing out every month, these phone calls from a purely financial standpoint, you're looking at each surgeon patient bringing in an extra one to two RVUs a month. I and mean, that allows you to really scale up the program, to hire more nurse navigators, to do a lot more work for the practice, to optimize patients with the expectation that you're going to have a lower readmission rate, lower post-op complication and better outcomes at the end and a better patient and customer experience. Cause you know, ultimately that's what, when patients coming in looking for a, a surgeon, they're looking for that, you know, they're they're shopping. So it's a really great way for concierge medicine, I think. And and, and it's just, it's a very important component, I think, moving forward to developing a successful orthoplasty practice.
0: Yeah, I can't say how important enough, uh, how important what Chris just said is enough. And it's great for those of us that have had these systems in place to just sort of recoup some of the value that we lost when the codes were devalued, but it's even more valuable for surgeons who are Trying to make a case to hire a nurse or to hire a nurse coordinator when every hospital right now is feeling the effects of the increased labor costs. I mean, the travelers and the labor costs are so high that hospitals really don't want to hire any ancillary staff that they don't absolutely have to. And by being able to go to administrations and say, this is the amount of money that we can expect to collect per patient per episode of care that will greatly help offset, not only offset the cost of this additional labor, but also provide a much better experience for our patients with a lower complication rate and a lower readmission rate. I mean, it really should help make the case for those surgeons out there that are struggling to get the support they need in these really crazy times.
1: Or anything else you guys think the listener should know or you want to add?
0: I always put in a plug because this is the question that I get the absolute most on coding is a comment on the global period is, I know this is for a lot of young surgeons, so they may be more in tune on this, but the number one thing that I always get brought to my attention is my coders always tell me that the global period begins the decision when the decision for surgery is made and therefore any work done between that time and the day of surgery is unbillable. And that is absolutely unequivocally untrue. CMS has completely backed this in the last year. The global period starts 24 hours prior to surgery. The decision for surgery in my mind and in most of our minds is not made until you see that patient in the pre-op holding room, you sign their extremity and you update that day of surgery h Because up until that time, anything can happen to cancel the case. I mean, they can have a heart attack the day before surgery and get admitted, and that would cancel the case right there. So that's just something I'm I'm putting a plug in every time I get a chance to talk about it, because I get asked about it at least twice a week. The global period starts 24 hours prior to surgery.
3: Yeah, there's even an example of that in the November 2022 CPT assistant that goes over the codes. And like the last example, there's a two-month wait after indication scheduling for surgery. Can you still bill CPM codes? And the answer is yes. So that global doesn't start, like you said, with scheduling.
1: Thank you so much to Dr. Engstrom and Dr. Skihan for joining us today. Please subscribe to The Augment wherever you get your podcasts and follow the Young Arthroplasty group at Aucus underscore YAG on Twitter. And happy coding.
2: Thank you for joining us for the Young
0: Arthroplasty Group Augment podcast channel. Visit acus.org to learn more about how members of American Association of Hip and Knee Surgeons educate, advocate, investigate, and perform humanitarian outreach in the field of hip and knee replacement surgery.